We are moving into a new message series entitled Family Resemblance. And um, as uh, you look at the pictures on the, um, on, on the graphic there, there's a lot of different ones that are somewhat similar in category and, and facial effect. And maybe as you're looking at them, you're thinking, um, yeah, I kind of see how those guys all fit to get together categorically. And probably whenever God looks at us, in some ways, we probably look like one of those characters. And as odd as that sounds, or funny as that sounds, uh, God has this vision that somehow this collection of misfits called human beings can be reassembled into a family. And that family not only can, can, can begin to take on uh, characteristics that uh, define that family in a certain way, but when people see different family members, they kind of know uh, what category those family members fit in. And what I'd like to do in this message series is have each of us look at our own sense of who we are in relation to our church family. And maybe you're thinking, I don't know that I could ever look like other church people. Or maybe you're thinking, I feel like I look like uh, the people around me. Or maybe you're just wanting to blend in. God wants to take it to a little bit deeper level. And he wants us to look alike in some ways that I, I think make all the difference in the world. That whenever people see one of us, they kind of see part of all of us. And the best way I can describe it is to go back in the Wayback Machine to the very first car I ever had. Do you guys remember your very first car? The very first one I had was, um, well, look at this car right here. It wasn't that car. I wish it was. I really do. Because, man, I'd probably still be driving that car. Or I'd be paying for all my kids' college with it and just, you know, sell it, which I would never do. But I'm looking at that car, and the realization is that's the car that I ended up with. Only that's not really it, because uh, mine probably didn't even look as good as that one. Now, what, what, what is the family resemblance between those two cars? Can anybody tell me? They're Ford? Okay. Anything else? What was the first one? Pinto and a Mustang. Now, I, I know there probably aren't a lot of horse people in here, but a Pinto is a type of horse. And if you don't believe it, look at the badging. It shows you a little horse kind of kicking up. And then when you look at a Mustang, of course, probably you've seen enough Westerns in your lifetime to know that a Mustang is a type of horse out West and a pretty, pretty wild and powerful one. Somewhere along the way, Ford got the idea that they wanted you to buy their new offering in 1964 and a half of the Ford Mustang. And whenever it rolled the showroom floor, it was a hit. I mean, everybody wanted that car. And tons of people bought 64 and a half, 65, 66, and I think that's a 67 or a 68 fastback. I could be wrong. Maybe it's a 69. I'm a Mopar guy, so I'm just guessing. But I'm looking at that car, and I can see that those guys had a winner. And the glory of that car resonated so powerfully with people that everybody want, wanted one. And a lot of people, maybe even in this room, some of you may have, have one in your garage still. It was such a an incredibly well-marketed, well-designed machine that when Ford decided 
30-some years later, they were going to go back and revisit it. No, it was probably 40-some. Close to 50-some years later, they were going to revisit it. They came out with this as the new Mustang. This as the new Mustang. <laughs> okay. You see any resemblance here? Sort of, kind of. I, I know if you're, if you're a car guy, you, you see the, the striping, the color, the wheels. And if you look at it from the front, it's got that wicked Mustang Cobra appeal. And probably if you were to just arrive on the planet and you looked at the two cars side by side, you might think, those guys are related, aren't they, somehow? And you'd be, yeah, they're related. They still have the same soul from the late 60s to, uh, let's say, the, uh, the 2010s. And clearly there is no question that one is, one is spawned from the other one. And perhaps if you get behind the wheel, you're like, yeah, and the other one's even faster. I don't know. But what's interesting is the Ford Motor Company decided that they were going to perpetuate the brand power of the Mustang and they were going to market another version of that family to people that weren't quite as interested in the muscle car aspect, but they liked the mystique of sort of the horse western theme. And so you get the Ford Pinto. And I had a Ford Pinto. I think you are well aware of that. And it was a 1970. It belonged to my sister. It was a hand-me-down. And I would say the top speed of the Mustang was probably, let's just, be, let's just exaggerate, 200 miles an hour. The Ford Pinto's top speed, after 15 minutes on a hill going down, 51 miles per hour. <laughs> For some reason, if you said to me at that time, this car is from the same family as the 1967-68 Ford Mustang, I would say, you're lying. Other than that badge on the front that says Ford, I would never believe it. Because there's nothing about that car that makes me think of that other car. And... Maybe some of you are going back into the Wayback Machine a little much and you're starting to feel nostalgic like, yeah, I remember my first date in my Ford Pinto because you know there are people out there that drove in this group that have driven Pintos. Can I get a witness? Any Ford Pinto people? Okay, good. No shame in that. Okay. Best car. Derek's, he's, he's going to be my contrarian here. But let's just watch. If I was... Buying a car in the family line of the Ford Mustang, and I saw this commercial, what would I think? What would you think? Just show this commercial for a second. It's only 30 seconds. Ford's Pinto lets you say goodbye to a lot of extra servicing because Pinto needs half the oil changes of the leading import. Pinto's brakes are self-adjusting. Pinto's paint finish never needs waxing. And unlike many imports, Pinto zinc plates key underbody parts to prevent rust. So say hello to Pinto and goodbye to a lot of extra servicing. Pinto, a little better idea from Ford. <laughs> What's that? That's like eating comfort food, wasn't it? There's only one thing about that commercial that I would change. 
You know how the, the businessman is glad-handing each of the uh, mechanics on the way to the car, and he's got a briefcase in his hand? I think to do it differently now, the only thing I would add would be I would exchange that briefcase for a fire extinguisher. Does anybody know what I mean? Can I get a witness? Maybe you can. Maybe you're like, I don't even, re- I don't even know what a pinno is. Just, just bear with me. The pinno was in, I, I think it was in production for about seven or eight years. And when it came out, uh, there were people that bought it because we're, we're, we're quickly moving into an oil crisis and it, was an, it became an economy go-to. And this is how I imagine, you know when, they, when a car is being uh, rolled out, it has to go through something called crash testing. Okay? And when the Ford Pinto crashed into the wall and the dummy, you know, is flopping around like that, that's what they're called dummies, they're flopping around like that, uh, Ford could have said, check, survived the basic standard of the National Highway Traffic Safety thing. So they did a side impact, check. Another side impact, check. Then they went to the back, and they did a back end up, uh, check, and so they slammed something into the back of it, and instead of check, it went boom. And they tried it again, boom. They tried it again, boom. And then they're like, Hmm, can't have that. Let's just hit it from the side angle instead next time so it doesn't blow up. Which they did, and they're like, check, didn't blow up. They roll it out into the marketplace, and people start driving them, only to discover very quickly that when a person is out shopping for their groceries and they're stopped at the stoplight and somebody who wasn't texting at the time but was distracted for some other reason slammed in the back of it, Boom. And enough of these things happened that they went to Ford and they said, your car should be rebranded as the, I don't know, incendiary device. How about just semi-nuclear bomb? And all kidding aside, people were dying left and right from these things blowing up. And you know what Ford said? It must be a mistake. It must be you. You must be doing something wrong. Our cars don't blow up. Now, do you see a problem here? Okay, so let's just, let's just kind of, let's just make sure we got this all in order. Ford has a must. And, of course, there's the, the Maverick. And there should be some resemblance because that's what they're trying to do is say, it's all good, same family, same, same grin that you're going to have on any of them if you buy any of them. The problem was one of them wasn't like the other because the other ones didn't blow up. And the deeper problem was when it did, no one wanted to own it. And so a lot of people started to wonder, is the Ford brand really a safe brand? Is it a reliable brand? Can I trust this brand? Now, before I go just meddling into territory for Ford fan, I'm not trying to bash Ford. 
I'm just saying that people started to question whether or not they wanted to buy any more of their cars. Because the glory of the late 60s Mustang faded into a fireball of just sort of backing away and saying, I'll go somewhere else. Now the message series that we're doing is called Family Resemblance. And the one thing that God wants to make sure happens in the lives of the people who call themselves Christians, the big goal is that when people see you, there is enough of a family resemblance, glory of who God is in Jesus, sorry about this, based on the glory of who God is in Jesus, that when they see you, they see God. Or at least they see enough about you to say, oh, you must be a Christian. And it's not because you don't smoke and you don't chew and you don't go out with girls who do. You just have something about you that just reminds me of God. And I can't put my finger on it other than when I see you, I think about God. And did you know that was God's design from the beginning? In the very first opening chapters, it said God made us male and female in his image and in his likeness. And not only that, he put us in charge of the entire planet and said, I want you to rule as kings and queens over this planet. And I want it to be reflective of what it would be like if I did that very thing myself as a human being. Are you with me? So when... Everyone sees you or when, when people take note of you or when animals take note of you, they're not afraid. They know that I'm caring. They know that you're caring. They know that you are protective because I'm protective. They know that you are responsible because I'm responsible. They know that you have the best interest of the creation that I've given you charge over as I have the best interest in you. And just going on and on. The problem was all of a sudden a bad case of selfishness took over. And we saw two people who were supposed to represent God saying, we're going to do it our way. And when they started making decisions that went against his purposes and God called them out on it, they said, we don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that. Oh, her, him, them. And the blame shifting just began. Have you ever been around somebody that blame shifts? Do you know what, you know what it means to blame shift? It means that you're working in a work situation or you're in a family situation and somebody does something that messes everything up. And everybody runs for cover and then they find an excuse for why it wasn't them. And if they're lucky, they'll find a good reason to point the finger at somebody else. You ever experience that in the workplace? You ever experience that at home? You ever experience that in your family? Have you ever been guilty of it? Now, I won't, you don't have to raise your hand because I think we're all kind of in that, in that category. Is it something that screams out to you, now that's the kind of person I want to spend my life with? I mean, when I was dating my wife and, you know, we, never mind. 
But you kind of get the point. You know that as people look at you, they're either they're sizing you up and they're asking the question, is this a person that I want to spend more time with? Or is this a person that I can't run away from fast enough? If I had the Ford Mustang, I would say that is a car I want to spend more time with. If I still had the Ford Pinto, I'd be looking at that Pinto and saying, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even inflict you on my dog, Nigel. And so, you know, there, there's just a difference about what we find appealing. And when God looks at us, he sees something about us that he says, I think we can restore you. Because I assume that Mustang probably was restored. Somebody said, even though I found this in a barn and it had rust, and the paint was faded, and the engine had gone over, there's something there, and it's worth it. And God looks at us, and he says, I love you just the way you are, but I also need to go to work in your life so that you can reflect my glory in ways that when people see you, they see me. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? And the first step that God does is he just opens it up in the form of an invitation. That any time, day or night, we want to be a part of his family, he's quickly there with the adoption papers saying, I want you to be a part of my family. And a lot of us have said, thank you Lord for adopting me into your family and making one of, one of your own. And others are riding the fence, but a lot of us have said that. And then in the process, God said, I love you the way you are. I'm thrilled that you're part of my family. But we got work to do. You're not going to earn your salvation because I've already saved you. But we gotta, we're going to be living together forever. And we've got we to keep this thing going in a healthy way. Now, if you have a Ford Pinto in your garage, do you have plans to make it look like that Mustang? Because chances are, you don't have a Ford Pinto in your garage. It's probably been crushed, melted down, remanufactured as an 80s car to be crushed and melted down to be remanufactured as a 90s car and repeat the cycle. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants to be a part of a Ford Pinto experience, except for probably Derek, but he's got his own reasons. Most of us would say, that's not something that I'm drawn to. And even if we did have a Ford Pinto, and we loved it because we have so many good memories about it, but since we've had it for 50 years, and rust is starting to take over and the engine leaks and the seats are cracked and the carpet stinks and the mice have eaten the wiring. There's a part of us that says, what would this thing be like if I started to fix it up? Could it have the glory that we experienced a long time ago? So here's where we're at. We are, we are reading through Psalms, uh, one a day, 25 a month. And some of us, you know, have been on this journey, and I want to encourage you to get on board with it. 
And today we're, tomorrow we're going to be reading Psalm 26 in a new booklet that's right outside the door. Today you're going to hear a sermon on Psalm 26 that has a lot to do with the work that God wants to do in your life and mine so that when people see us, they see him. And I think that God is already at work doing that in your life, whether you realize it or not. And in Psalm 26, it centers on a man named King David, who the scripture tells us, long story short, before he was called to be king, he was chosen. And the reason why he was chosen, it was said, was because he was a man after God's own heart. Now since I've got a auto theme going on. Would you rather have your car repaired by the guy who says, how many cars can I crank out in a day with repairs, with duct tape and nylon wire, and some, uh, some black spray paint? And then there's the other guy who says, this is a man after God's own heart. Now let's assume all things being equal, that God is a good God, of good character, who is not only kind and compassionate, but caring that things are healthy and they're the way they need to be. I'll take the mechanic who's a man after God's own heart, or woman, and I'll go with that person. And David is described early on as a king who has God's heart. And in the storyline of the scripture, there have been so many people so far who when people saw them, they didn't see God. And God wanted a king who when people looked at him, they would say, we know whose God th this king belongs to. Because there's something different about him. And the Psalms are written by this king because he understood God. He had prayed as a shepherd in the woods, in the desert, on the hillside, when lions and snakes and weather and everything were attacking, when people were attacking. And God had been faithful and helped him every time. He grew in a relationship where he not only heard about God at church, but he experienced God on the personal level when he asked him for help in difficult times. When he became king, God had already seen David trusting him and David reflecting him and talking about him. And as he chose him, his idea was when people see the king, they see someone who is an example of what a godly person should look like. And as this king is writing his spilling his heart out in, in the Psalms, we're reading that he's not always a man after God's own heart. He's not always perfect. He kind of whines sometimes. He complains. He's made some mistakes. But every time that happens, he defaults back to God. And God is sort of like his true north. It's the thing that keeps his life from going off the rails. And my guess is that's a good description of you and I. Well, here's the thing I want to share. In Psalm 26, we read these verses, beginning with the first one. 
Let's go ahead and put that up there as, as the scripture. David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. David's just putting it out there. And then he's saying, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of, let's just do one more, evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar proclaiming, O Lord, thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wonderful, wondrous deeds. Stopping right there, I want us to just back up for a minute and consider the fact if you are in God's family, then you are representing God wherever you go. If people find out you're a Christian, they're going to be sizing you up and they're going to be asking, are you a hypocrite? Are you just like everybody else? Is there something different about you? You know, as a pastor, it's really challenging because imagine being in an elevator or a car ride or something and you're with a lot of people who don't go to church. And they start telling jokes and they start carrying on and they're wanting to include you in the conversation and you want to be included in the conversation. But you've been pretty, pretty quiet so they don't really know how to size you up. And everything just kind of spins along as it normally would. And then the question is asked, Hey Leonard, what do you do? And I'm tempted to say, I'm a counselor, public speaker. Um, I work with people in an organization. But as soon as I say, pastor, the temperature in the room changes. Sometimes for good, sometimes not so much. But they do expect there to be a difference. And not that I'm better than anybody, I would never say that. Just different. And David is saying... I've been sort of measuring my life up against the things that I know I believe. And I think right now I got it, I'm, I'm in a pretty good space. But I also hang out with people that could care less about God and do some pretty awful things. And they're starting to rub off on me away, in a way that I can feel their influence and I've got to disconnect from them somewhat. Because I have to represent I'm a king, I'm called to represent God's interests here on earth, and I'm called to be responsible. And as I represent, um, these are the characteristics that he's talking about in the psalm. And the first one is, he has to represent in his relationships. And if you are a Christian, and you go to church, the one thing I can, I can tell you is this. There will be people. And there will be people that want to get to know you, Hopefully that are friendly, that are hospitable, if the church is doing what the church needs to be doing. But what happens over time is eventually we'll start working together on something, and then you'll have a disagreement. And somebody will say, I want to do it this way, and another person says, I want to do it that way. And sometimes people get angry and offended, and they don't, they don't speak to each other anymore. Now here's my question. If you're in a family... And you offend one of your family members. Do you just want to say, I'm out. Quitting this family. Moving on. 
I'm going to go find another family and be a part of that family. Or do you do the math and you're like, hmm, yeah, I'm stuck with these people. How are we going to make this work? And as a Christian, you have to say, I am stuck with these people. And they're stuck with me. And how does God want to make it work? Because that really is the question. If you could back up a slide, if you don't mind, Stephen. I want to highlight something real quickly. He said, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The word faithfulness is actually covenantal faithfulness. I'm not going to belabor that other than to say that when God chose Israel to be his people here on earth, he wanted them to display in all the choices that they make, the things that they did, the things that they believed, he wanted them to reflect what he would do under any of those conditions. And so God said, I'm going to call you out of Egypt. I'm going to make you my own people. And this is how I'm calling you to live. So that when people see you, they see me. And hopefully they'll be drawn in. But most people, initially after the honeymoon period, start to disagree. Start to not see eye to eye. Start to struggle. Start to get mad. Start to get offended, don't they? But we need people and we need the church and we need each other. And God's provided an answer. And that word faithfulness has a lot to do with it. And the word behind, that, behind faithfulness is the biblical word covenant. Let me just illustrate. Whenever, about 30 years ago, I walked into a church like this with a tuxedo on. Because there was another person getting ready to walk into this church with a bridal gown on. And it was a ceremony that was going to take place in front of a lot of people. And as we're up there, there's a pastor and he's saying to us, I want to ask you if you will consent to these things. Will you love your wife uh, in sickness and in health for better, for worse, or all of that stuff. And of course, I was so mortified. I'm like, what do I say? I do, I do, I do, and I meant it, and she said the same thing, and the pastor solemnized the ceremony as a covenant between her and I, but not only that, the language also said that it is between her and I and God. Let's play this out 10, 20, 30 years. My wife and I have had a blissful life together. We never disagree. It's just awesome. Because we're Christians. It's perfect. Man, you should try it. It's the way it is. Now, I can tell you, that's not the way it is. Matter of fact, what it did was it brought to the surface stuff in my heart and I can't speak for her, but I would assume that it brought to the surface stuff in her heart. But in her opinion, probably a lot less stuff than my stuff. But I'm okay with that. And when it did, I didn't like it. I kind of wanted to go all Ford Pinto. Yeah, I know that's, that's incendiary. I know that can destroy things. I know that that's a problem, but that's not me. That's somebody else. Obviously, this problem that we're having has nothing to do with me and everything to do with you. Guess how far that got us? My advice to you guys, just a pro tip, if you're buying furniture as a newlywed, 
buy the best, most comfortable couch that you can sleep on. Because you probably will. And when you do, there'll be a little process going on. It'll be something like this. It'll be God talking to you saying, do you want to spend the rest of your life on this couch? And we know the obvious answer. No. Do you think maybe you should do a little bit of personal inventory? Can we change the subject? Can I rephrase the question? And what God is doing is he's saying, I want to search your heart a little bit, and I want you to be aware of something that you probably are not very well aware of. You're bringing this brand of problems to the relationship. We have a covenant here, and it's my job in this covenant, God tells us, to help you to be aware of what that is, and then to give you what you need to work through it. Now, my wife and I, we've had disagreements And I won't go into that other than to say that I've learned something. And that is, we have a covenant together. It's for life. And I have a responsibility to do my part. God has a responsibility to do his part. She has a responsibility to do her part. And my responsibility under those conditions is this. I've learned. Lord, I'm in a conflict. Search my heart. Soften my heart. Don't let my pride and my ego get in the way and help her in her own wrestling with this agreement that we have. And it's amazing what that prayer does to create reconciliation. And I don't know that it's taught well enough in churches. I don't know that our people are equipped enough to realize that's the power of the biblical covenant because God is at work in it. And I'm ashamed to say I haven't taught it to couples like I wish I have had in the past. Because it makes all the difference. And the one thing that is faithful in that covenant, when we are not in whatever form that takes, is God. And he kind of leads the way in that relationship so that we know what to do based on how we trust him to know how to respond. Now David's saying all this stuff because in his relationship with other people, he's tried to make sure that his house is in order because this psalm really is about him taking some time and looking inside and saying, you know, what do I need to sort out? I'm not sure. So the relationships that you have with each other in your home and the relationships that you have with each other in your church family are no different Because we observe the Lord's Supper as a means of looking at a covenant through a a loaf of bread, a little piece of bread, and a a cup of, 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 it's 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 unfermented grape juice. So that we keep everybody in order. But as we're looking at it, it's not what the alcoholic content as much as it is um, what it means. It's just a reminder every week. You got a relationship here, and you got a relationship here. And it's designed by a covenantal agreement that you're a part of, and you're responsible. I'm sure there are church people that you would just like to cancel, just like you unfriend them in, on, on social media. We don't, have the, we don't have the privilege of canceling anybody. 
we're just thankful that God hasn't canceled us. But God doesn't cancel people. He loves people. And he takes cancel people like you and I and says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the Ford Pinto that you are right now and I'm going to upgrade you. But in this case, not as a Ford Pinto, but as a Mustang. Who does that? Can you, okay, let's be honest. Can you take a 1970 Ford Pinto and make a 1967 Ford Mustang GT Cobra Fastback out of that car? I don't think so. But when God looks at you and I and he salvages us, he says, if anyone is in me, he or she is a new creation. You're being remade. I'm sorry for picking on the Pinto, Derek, but something has to be the villain here. Better the Pinto than the Mustang, or the Dodge Challenger for that matter. And what's so cool about it is when God looks at you and I, he says this, we have problems and something has to give in order for change to happen. And there's a lot of guilty parties in this mix. And I don't see how we can restore this thing. Except one way. And that's through Jesus. Who just threw himself into the equation. And said I, I can restore your life if you'll let me in. I can begin to work on your strained marriage, on your strained relationship with your children. I can begin to work with people in the church that you're struggling with. All you have to do is ask and I will help you. I will remake you. I will remake you into something glorious. Now that I can tell you, I definitely don't have the perfect marriage, but I, I'm a blessed human being. And I think my wife would tell you she's a blessed human being. And I think I could say that about a lot of people in this room, truth be told who go to bed at night knowing that they have been remade, they've been adopted and remade into something new. I'm going to end this message right here. And just with the thought that as God is restoring you and I and removing those things that are dangerous for ourselves and the people around us, he's rewiring us to take on characteristics so that when people see us, they no longer see anger and hatred and jealousy and finger pointing, whichever finger it is. And everything about yourself and your soul that you know is dark and giving us a change of heart and demeanor where we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. So much that when people see us, they're like, I don't remember you. You're not the Leonard that I remember. What, what, what happened? I would just say, Jesus happened. 
I became a believer at 19, and I had to distance myself from a lot of people that were doing things that I felt like were not in my best interest and were influencing how I was living my life out, and I didn't like that script. But the problem was I didn't want to unfriend my friends. I wanted to keep them as my friends. But the more I was with them, the more it was leading to my undoing. So I knew, knew I needed to at least take a break. And where did I go to take a break? Because I had a lot of friends. And I needed some new ones. And the place I went was my grandma's church. And when I went in there with longish hair, flannel in the 80s, bell-bottom pants, I didn't fit in. It didn't matter because people walked up to me and said, glad you're here. They invited me to the, in their home. They fed me. Pastor gave me free lunches. I could not believe it. I'm like, these people are different. And they're my new friend. They're my new family. And now I'm a pastor, and the roles have changed, and my hope is that if anybody comes in this, into this place, we'll look, look at them as people that God's inviting to become a part of their family. And we're not perfect, but we're self-aware enough to know that we can push these people away by being willful and arrogant and prideful and petty and bitter and gossipy because we haven't taken the time to do a little bit of a soul check. And when we're in that space, we know we're not in the right space. And we say, God, I want to exchange all of that for everything good. God says, I want to use you for everything good. So here's the end of the sermon. I want to just invite you into a family that I believe is an awesome family. And the way that we do it is we, um, we, can, we can come forward while we're singing, meet me or anybody that you recognize as somebody who looks like they belong here, and ask them for help. Go to the studio afterwards. Put a phone number on the Connect card, however you want to do it. We would love to have that conversation with you and find out what God's been doing in your life and help you along the way. And then as we do that, hopefully, the next step is baptism where you say, yeah, I haven't been baptized. And we say baptism is just a way of showing yourself in the world and everything, seen and unseen, that you are a part of this family. It doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But it is, a, it is an act of obedience that says, I want to be with them. And you know it in your mind when you do it. And if you need to be a part of that process, I hope during this message series, God moves you in that direction. But whatever the case may be, it's a big family. And God wants to make it bigger. And then God wants to make us better. Would you bow with me? Father, we are grateful that you have looked into our lives, our hearts, and you've seen the things that are unrestored. And you have this vision for our lives, our relationships, our life with you our life in this world that is so much better. And I just pray for everyone here that they could experience the grace that pulls us in and they could know that as you do, 
you have a deep and profound love for all of us. And then from there, Father, you lead however, and you lead us however you see fit to do that wonderful work in the beautiful people that you have made in your image and likeness. No one by example is a Ford Pinto, but everybody is in Mustang status waiting to be restored. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that a bloodstained cross, that pardon for our sin, and an empty tomb paved the way to life with you. Amen.